Hello and welcome to a History of Hannibal, episode 39, 5.26. If anyone can guess why I've named this episode 5.26, I'll be mightily impressed. Almost every episode title is a reference to something, this one included. Rack through your brains. 5.26. Anyone got it? No? That's fine, I wasn't expecting you to. It's referring to a passage of Thucydides, Book 5, Chapter 26. The passage is known as Thucydides' Second Preface, which is what the beginning of today's episode is, a second introduction. We may have more introductions in the future, but this will be our second. So, last week I broke out of the narrative and went into what I termed historian mode. I did a bit of source analysis and it was much more analytical than I normally am as I relate events. I asked you guys what you thought of it, and feedback has been almost uniformly positive. Thanks so much, everybody who wrote in, to let me know what you thought. I was rather nervous about offering you my opinions of events and of the sources as a historian, rather than the more conventional storytelling, or relating the opinions of other historians. This signals a change in the way the podcast is going. I'd like to tell you what that change is, but I really don't know exactly. We're entering the second stage of the story. I've spent the past ten months giving background information and taking us to the opening of the Second Punic War, and have told the first few years of the war in the Western Mediterranean. We still need to go over Greece, but we'll do that when Hannibal makes his alliance with Philip V of Macedon. We've seen Hannibal's great victories, we've seen Rome's great defeats, I'm sure you all know the gist of what's coming next, that Hannibal's war effort is going to become stuck going round in circles as Rome gets its act together. We'll see Scipio go to Spain and rebuild Rome's confidence, before turning to Africa for the final showdown with Hannibal. While I could very easily go over the Second Punic War in a few episodes and be on to the next project, we're not going to do that. We're going to go into the events of the Middle Punic War, the years which are often forgotten by some authors. There is still a decade to go before Scipio invades Africa, a very interesting story that is worth knowing. As we get into this story, I'm going to be more analytical. This may be throughout the podcast in general, or in occasional analytical episodes, but what we're going to be trying to do is answer the question, just how did Rome get out of this mess? How did Rome win the Punic War? How did Carthage lose it? I'm still putting the pieces of the puzzle together, not all of which I've shared yet, but trust me, it is going to make sense at the end. An example of this is my frustration at Carthage for not building a fleet. I've had numerous messages about this with people who disagree with me, which is fine, but I've only explained part of the story. 
I'll draw your attention to one of the major events in the Second Punic War, Margot's invasion of Italy. In the late 200s, Carthage realises that not building a fleet was a mistake, and attempts to make a sea invasion of Italy from Africa, led by the brother of Hannibal, Margot Barker. Margot was an excellent general, and the invasion was highly successful, and could have proved Rome's undoing, had it been launched ten years earlier. It's unlikely I'll get around to covering the invasion before the end of the year. Quite possibly not until far into 2014 will we be covering such actions. My point is that there are very important pieces of the puzzle which we haven't gotten into yet, and unfortunately such pieces are not as well known as events such as Kenai. As the analysis now begins, please give me a bit of leeway. It's going to take a year or so to fully answer these questions, but we will get there. And so, let's get back into the narrative. It is 216 BC. Word of Kenai has just reached Rome, and the forces which survived Kenai have reunited under the command of Varro in Canusium. Several thousand Romans have surrendered to Carthage on the agreement that Rome will pay a ransom for them. For the moment, we return to Rome. The two praetors, Phileus and Pomponius, summoned the Senate to work out what on earth they were going to do next. It was fully expected that Hannibal would march north from Cannae to Rome immediately and capture the city in a coup de grace. It was this that they had to plan against. But to work out a good plan requires knowledge. You need to know what is coming against you if you can work out a plan on how to face it. As said famously by Francis Bacon, and more recently by Lord Peter Littlefinger Baelish, knowledge is power. The problem for Rome was that they had no idea what was going on. As far as they knew, the 85,000 or so Romans sent against Hannibal had all been killed, along with both consuls, and Hannibal was on his way. As it turns out, they were wrong on all three counts. As the senators met in the Curia Hostilia, the wailing of women mourning their husbands and sons could be heard from every corner of the city. Times were bleak. It is at this moment Quintus Fabius Maximus, the former dictator, rose and offered some proposals. The first thing they should do is find out some accurate and reliable information. They should send some lightly equipped riders south along the Via Latina and the Via Appia to get information. These two roads both led to Capua. The Via Latina was the older road, which went through the interior of Italy, while the Via Appia was a later construction and stuck mostly to the coast. These riders should question any survivors they met, find out what happened to the consuls, and what happened to the armies. As well as knowing of their own forces, 
they also needed to find out what had happened to the Carthaginian force. Where was Hannibal? How had his army been affected by the battle? What were his plans? That sort of thing. The next thing to do would be to deal with matters in the city. Namely, impose some order. The Romans often remind me of Victorian Britain in terms of their attitude. Stiff upper lip and all that. Romans greatly loved order and were not very fond of wildness and nature. When you think of an ideal place to relax, you would probably think of a desert islander, a meadow, somewhere quiet, out of the way, and wild. Romans didn't think like this. They hated nature being wild, and sought to contain and control it. The ideal garden was not wild, it was designed and controlled by man. I think that understanding this mentality is very important when dealing with the situation after Cannae. It was the Roman way of doing things, to take control of the situation, not to let things pass by and be controlled by nature. So, Fabius proposed that the current situation of Rome being dominated by mourners was unacceptable. Women should be forbidden to leave the house. Family mourning should be checked. Silence should be imposed. If anyone had any news, they should take it directly to the praetors, and they should not go out searching for news, but news concerning them would be brought to them if it arrived. Guards should be posted around the city walls to prevent anyone from leaving, and the people must think that their only hope of survival was to stay in Rome. With the city in a state of order, then the Senate may meet properly and take matters from there. These proposals were supported unanimously. The account is full of misogynistic tones of a Roman gentleman that women are unstable creatures and need to be kept inside for their own protection but if we remove this undercurrent from the scenario, restoring order to the city was desperately needed, and getting people off the streets who didn't need to be there and who weren't helping the situation was a highly productive move. If they could get the atmosphere of depression out of the city, they could start being productive. And if they could start doing things and being prepared, then they would be ready to face Hannibal when the time came rather than wallowing in their sorrows, as they were presently doing. So, once the Senate agreed on these actions, the magistrates began clearing out people from the forum, while the senators tried bringing order to the streets. It is at this moment word arrived at Rome from Varro. Varro was able to completely update them on the situation. Paulus was dead, along with most of the army. He was stationed at Canusium with 10,000 men, but they were not a coherent force. Hannibal hadn't left Cannae, and wasn't acting like a victor at all. Families were informed of their losses, and as religion was not allowed to be practised by a mourner, the festival of Ceres was cancelled, as such a large number of married women were mourning. 
Word also came in from Sicily, asking for more supplies. We'll deal with this in more detail later. Marcus Claudius Marcellus, currently commanding the fleet at Ostia, was sent to Varro with instructions for him to come back to Rome once it was safe to do so. I think this is the first mention of Marcellus. Marcellus was born in 268 BC, and so was 52 at the time of Cannae. He rose to fame in the 220s for his excellent generalship fighting against the Gauls, and having a very impressive victory against them in 222 BC. We'll be seeing a lot more of Marcellus throughout this war. Along with Fabius and Scipio Africanus, he's one of the truly great figures of the Roman war effort in the Second Punic War. Bad news continued to roll in. It was found out that two Vestal Virgins, Opima and Floronia, had broken their vows of chastity. One was buried alive, while the other killed herself. The man who had debauched Floronia was beaten to death by the Pontifex Maximus in the assembly. The Romans took their oaths seriously, and there were severe punishments for breaking them. It is in this moment that one of Rome's darkest moments occurs. After consultation of the sacred books, Rome resorted to human sacrifice. The Romans were immensely proud of their civilization, and how they did not commit human sacrifice, like barbarians. That human sacrifice took place is a highly significant event, and shows us how worried the Romans really were, however much they tried to force order onto the situation. It was a national embarrassment. Livy tries hiding the situation away in Book 22, Chapter 59. Meanwhile, on the authority of the sacred books, some unusual rites were performed. One of them consisted in burying alive in the cattle markets a pair of Gauls, male and female, and a pair of Greeks. The burial was in a walled enclosure which had been stained before with the blood of human sacrifice, a most un-Roman rite. Mentioned, and noted, but hidden. Rome was desperate. Human sacrifices had just been performed. The Senate appointed a dictator, Marcus Junius Perra. His master of horse was a man we've met before, Tiberius Sempronius Longus, the consul defeated at the Trebia. There was a levy as they tried to get new recruits. They raised four legions of young men, probably only aged about 20, as well as buying 8,000 slaves and equipping them. An unprecedented step. Marcellus reinforced Rome with 1,500 troops from Ostia, and then turned south to meet Varro. This is where we'll leave things for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to today's show, you'll know where to find us. Thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com 
facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast twitter.com forward slash the history of pod youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast the history of podcast dot spreadshirt dot co dot uk history podcasters dot com and the history of podcast at gmail dot com I'll see you next week when we continue to see what happened immediately after Kanai along with seeing a man who is barely featured today Hannibal himself thanks for listening <laughs>